Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, salam, and welcome to the podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, a channel with the New Books Network. I'm your host, Shahna Zaqani. Today, we talk with Shivan Mahindra Raja about his book, The Sufi Saint of Jam, History, Religion, and Politics of a Sunni Shrine in Shia Iran, published in 2021 with Cambridge University Press. The book explores the history and politics of Ahmadijam's shrine, which is located in Iran. The shrine is of particular interest and importance given that Ahmad of Jam, who died in the 12th century Kaman era, was a Sunni Sufi while contemporary Iran is, of course, majority Shia. And the shrine has lasted and even thrived for 900 years. The renaissance of the shrine in Iran is also of particular relevance given prevailing assumptions about Iran's alleged sectarian and intolerant Shia theocracy. Complete with photographs, this exciting book would appeal to academics, researchers, and others interested in Central Asia, Afghanistan, Sufism, medieval Islam, and, of course, Iran. It will also be of use to anyone interested in Islamic art and architecture. In our conversation today, Mahindra Raja discusses the origins of the book, explains why and how Ahmadi Jam, whose shrine is the focus of the book, became known as a patron saint of kings, why the shrine has lasted for 900 years, including in a contemporary Shia majority, the source of services that the shrine has provided historically, its funding sources, and the ways that the shrine operates today. We also talk about the architecture of the shrine, and the author explains how the book might, might also appeal to scholars interested in Islamic art and architecture. Without further ado, this here is my interview with Shivan Mahindra Raja. Hi, Shivan. Thank you so, so much for uh, joining me today to talk about your book, The Sufi Saint of Jam, History, Religion, and Politics of a Sunni Shrine in Shia Iran. As I was just telling you, I really I enjoyed it. I thought it was a very fascinating read about someone who you know, is an interesting figure. Uh, and we'll talk about how he becomes such an important figure. But uh, thank you so much for coming and talking with me about this today. Actually, thank you very much for having me here. I'm very appreciative. I'm glad you actually enjoyed the book. We'd like to begin with our uh, first question, uh, with <clears throat> something like, you know, tell us about your intellectual journey. What got you interested in the field? What has your journey been like? What got you interested in this book in the first place? So. Okay. Okay. That's, that's, that's a good one. Um, let me see. I start off as an Arabist. Um, started learning Arabic and was interested more in Arabic, uh, the Arab world and Arab history until I bumped into um, Richard W. Bullitt, uh, was a Columbia University student, and he sort of took me under my under his wing, and of course, um, got very interested in Iran and the Persian world and Sufism. Uh, Islamic studies was uh, my major at the time. Uh, but as Islamic studies is really focusing initially on Arab at, on the Arab world, so he gave me some great advice. He said, "You know, why don't you travel and just kind of decide what you want to do? Uh, you know, whatever you want to do for a thesis or whatever." Because I was still not sure. And he had talked a lot about the Kart Dynasty of Herat and the Sufis of Jam. Um, one of his students had done a thesis on the Kartids. And anyway, so I went off. I lived in Saudi, sorry, in uh, Syria for a while, and lived in Iran. Uh, once I hit Iran, it kind of like all sort of made sense because I decided to become a Persianist instead of an Arabist. 
studied at the University of Tehran, learned Persian. I'd been learning Persian also before, along with the Arabic, but um, and then I went off to job and I sort of saw the shrine and I said, you know what? I think that this is going to be my topic for my thesis. And that was it. <laughs> it's very, I mean, it is, it make, I, I had never heard of it. I didn't know that this community existed or, you know, what you call a cult in this book. I didn't know this existed. It was really fascinating. Um, so then why, why this book? Why now? Why Ahmed? Why this, you know, this guy, Ahmed Ijam? Yeah, okay. Uh, actually, it's very interesting in the sense is that, you know, like with most people, I always just, you know, used to always think of Iran as a Shia country. Um, but then, you know, when I started living there in Tehran, just keep running into people who are Armenian or Georgian descent, they're Christians, they're Zoroastrians, they're Jews, uh, Sunnis, all of them. And you just realize that actually there's a very vibrant, you know, ethno-linguistic mosaic in Iran, um, even though they all go under the Iranian national identity, they do have lots of cultural diversity. And I found the shrine fascinating in both the intellectual level, but also on sort of emotional level. I kind of, there's something about it, you know, like when you see something, you say, I, I kind of like it. Uh, but you don't necessarily know why. Um, but on an intellectual level, I knew why I liked it, which is that it was quite fascinating to think of this. I had read read about it, and that's what I may travel all over Iran. I read a lot of, you know, uh, Zoroastrian fire temples, synagogues down in Yazd, uh, churches in Isfahan, you know, uh, uh, the shrine of uh, Esther and Mordecai in Hamadan from the Jewish Bible, Hebrew Bible. And you know, coming out there, just seeing this whole area, which is predominantly Sunni, all these, you know, Sunni shrines, mosques, as well as some Shia uh, mosques and shrines, it just seemed very interesting there. And the culture was also kind of fascinating, too, because, uh, you know, in Iran, people, uh, sorry, in places like Tehran or in Mashhad, the big cities of Tabriz, you know, people will wear jackets and ties or jackets uh, and pants and so on. And then you go out to this area and you find people wearing jackets and pants and all dressed up very nicely, as well as people who dress, you know, the way you would see those Sunni people dress in Afghanistan or in uh, in Pakistan, you know, with turbans and all of that. So I, I was just captivated by the whole area, you know, and even the bus ride from Mashhad down there was quite entertaining, you know, um, before the bus leaves, everybody says, says a prayer and the, the whole the crowd just, you know, every, all the passengers, you know, say, you know, um, uh, Bismillah, whatever. And then they just go off on the journey and they're sharing their drinks and tea on the bus. And, um, you know, you get down there, you see the shrine. But you also realize too, from some of the photographs that the shrine was actually falling down at one time. It was in bad shape. And that it's a 900 year old shrine, but now it's, you know, alive. And, you know, this architecture, some of it is like, hundreds of years old. Um, one item is, I think, about 800 years old. Um, it's being restored. Um, great pieces of artwork inside, tile work, designs uh, have been restored very painstakingly at great expense. So, and it just seemed like a story that, you know, had to be told. But of course, I was working on the thesis at the time. So for the thesis purposes, I just did a very narrow narrow topic because it's a thesis, this is what most of us do. Um, 
But then when it came time to revise the thesis for the book, I was kind of stumped. Like, what was I going to say about this place? And um, I then, you know, a very nice gentleman, Professor uh, Tony Street at the Faculty of Divinity. I'm, I'm trying to find the exact quote of what he said um, here. Let me just read out. Tony Street is at the University of Cambridge's Divinity Faculty, which is a religion department in the U.S., and he talked about the shrine, and he said in a quote, the extraordinary spectacle of an institution dealing with pressures arising from changing dynasties and sectarian division, adopting strategies that allowed it to flourish through nine centuries. And that sort of gave me a bit of an idea as to try and tell the story of the shrine, as opposed to the Sufi community or about, you know, just the history of the shrine under the Mongols or under Tamerlane, because they did very well under the Mongols, believe it or not, and they also did very well under Timur, Tamerlane, um, which meant kind of recasting the thesis into a 900-year history, which is not something that most people would do. In fact, most sane people wouldn't do it. Um, so it took me a long time to think it through to, to see how I would try to tell this story. And um, the result of it was, you know, the, basically the book, as you see in multiple parts, where, uh, sorry if you hear the mouse clicking, but I don't have a hard copy with me. <clears throat> so I'm actually looking at the TOC online. You know, so part one really covers the, the saint, you know, this is Ahmadi John um, and his biography and also the hagiography and how, um, Biography and hagiography are sometimes at odds, and how he became a saint. I was confer you know, saintdom was conferred on him and patronage from uh, kings and emirs and big shots. And then part two about the successes from the Ilkhanid, this longer period, on down to the Islamic Republic. You know, these eight hundred year period, they've actually been quite successful for 500 plus years of the 800 year period in extracting resources from their rulers, whether it's the Mongols or the Shia Islamic Republic, uh, because they get private donations to develop the shrine, but they also get public funds, but most of all, they get uh, technical support from Iran's cultural heritage organization. And that's very important because not everybody knows how to restore 800 year or 500 year old uh, architectural um, marvels. And it's these specialists, they're the ones who do all that work or find the people and train the people to do the work. In part three, you know, it's about the shrine, you know, the architecture, the administration and the setting of the shrine in terms of its geography and also about how the shrine became wealthy through things like managing agriculture. And in addition to that, they also things that they did, you know, they provided certain public services to the community around them and they continue to do so. A lot of these shrines, not just this particular shrine, but you know, they go in North Africa or, you know, the core Middle East, as we would say, um, they are the shrines, they feed the poor, uh, the hungry, they take care of all, 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 not just shrines, mosques do this as well. 
kanakas, you know, the hospices for Sufis. So this shrine too did a lot over the years for in terms of public service. And today, for example, they have a large public library and uh, it's open to the community. They also uh, provide they have two madrasas, one for boys, uh, one for males and one for females. And they provide scholarships for students who want to study there. And those who can afford it will pay. Um, the other part gets a bit more complicated about the shrine, which is about sacred topography and about Islamic learning, which is basically about um, how, how certain places become sanctified. And how, because a particular area is considered to be sacred, um, <clears throat> schools and madrasas tend to, madrasas and kanakas tend to pop up in those areas. This is also true for Mecca and Medina and Qom and, and various other places, the Najaf, Karbala, that they're considered sanctified areas. And so putting a college there is considered to have some kind of a merit. It may be psychological, but it's there. And the last part is really about the doctrines and practices of the Sufis. So that was how I recast it into four parts about the saint, the successors, the shrine, and the Sufis. And the last part of the Sufis is very much Islamic studies about how Sufis practice Sufism, the Zek and in various other uh, techniques that they engage in. Excuse me, my throat's a bit dry. That that is very helpful. Thank you so much for that. Yes, I, you know, I'm just really like I was telling you earlier. I'm so fascinated with this person, right? You, I, I would love for you to tell our audience who Ahmed was, because it sounds like you know he wasn't all that great as a living person. You mentioned, for example, that he was stingy and he was strict and he was mean, and he's especially intolerant of people who didn't share his views and you know oh, yeah. the, the the very annoying the very annoying kind of and join the good and forbid the evil. And he didn't have great relations with you know, many, many, many of his children. Oh yeah. How then does one become a saint despite such a persona? Well, let's just say there's hope for me, um, but I don't know. I mean, That's what I was thinking. <laughs> there's hope for the rest of us. Exactly, exactly. Because I, it, it, it's actually quite fascinating because, it, you know, I mean, I was raised Catholic, I am, you know, and so, you know, we have this whole idea of, uh, of a sainthood is a saintly person. You know, we always use it as a comment too, don't we? We say, oh, he's such a saint or she's such a saint, you know? Uh, somebody might say it's sarcastic, but we do. But by our, uh, through our lenses, there's nothing saintly about Ahmadi Jam. Um, now I suspect that his family at some point, there was Zoroastrians who converted to Islam. So, there's a bit of zealousness in him, particularly towards Zoroastrians, whom he clearly didn't like. Uh, Zoroastrians, even today, for example, are allowed to, you know, as are Jews and Christians, allowed to have wine in uh, because it's only, you know, it's only prescribed to Muslims. Um, and apparently, he didn't even like that idea, and you know, he would like bully them and break their musical instruments, I guess, during weddings or whatever it might be. Um, and yes, he was stingy. Um, he was vindictive and, uh, <laughs> you know, at the age of 80, as I kind of mentioned, he was chasing after some teenage girl. So that's kind of very unsaintly behavior. Um, and some of that 
in the sense too, we're not 100% sure is also fact because it's very difficult to separate fact from, you know, biography, from hagiography. We can kind of guess because some of the stories about him, they may be, they may have some truth to it because they were included in hagiography by one of his um, acolytes. In modern times, of course, Amity Jam's progeny, their descendants today, don't kind of like that book very much because it does cast him in a bad light. Um, and so they would, you know, one of them actually basically even told me, oh, don't, don't, don't even, you know, read that book, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, so, yeah, even, even they are a bit embarrassed by him. But that is, but that is, I think, in some ways, the nature of, of, Muslim sainthood or sainthood uh, in the sense is that now in the Catholic Church, for example, this is a, there's a process that says, you know, you go through that process, there are miracles that are performed by so-and-so, and yes, we kind of vote that so-and-so is uh, a saint. In the Islamic world, and this is true of, you know, from North Africa to Central Asia, you know, going back over the centuries, uh, the local community has decided for itself if somebody is a saint or is not. And so along the way, he became a saint. He just had a very small grave, very small tumulus and shrine, um, small shrine, I should say, not tumulus. And that became bigger and bigger. And, you know, uh, by a century after his death, there was a little dome built nearby. And a couple of centuries later, you know, buildings started sprouting up around and from a small Shrine became a shrine complex, and people were coming there for pilgrimages. And, in, and it's had famous, famous pilgrims. You know, Sultan Sanjar was a devotee of Ahmadi Jam. He considered him a saint and um, came there for ziyarat. There were a number of, you know, emirs during the Mongol era and local rulers, the Kar Tajik kings of Herat. They, many of them, not all of them, um, did come there to worship, or to say Ziyarat at the shrine. Tamerlane did come there to get blessings also, not just from the Sufis, but blessings from the living Sufis for his conquest of Iran, or eastern, of eastern Iran, the Khorasan region. And then over the years, you know, descendants of Ahmed included uh, the Mughal emperors, you know, Akbar the Great, and uh, Homayun. So, there were all these very powerful and famous people who considered him a saint and getting his blessings before they did something was essential uh, for people. We felt that without his blessings, without coming there, not just to him necessarily alone, but they might go to a couple other shrines as well. And getting these blessings was just a way of getting some kind of celestial insurance to before they proceeded on to a uh, major political event or military engagement. Mm -hmm. And speaking of going to other shrines, one of the very interesting things about the, about the practices in the old days is that uh, there is near Jam, about 90 miles, 100 miles away, Mashhad is the shrine of Imam Reza. That is today considered more of a Shia thing, but um, it wasn't so before. I mean, there were lots of rulers or people who would come there 
get his blessings and go to what we would today call the Sunni shrine as well. So getting Shia blessings and Sunni blessings, you know, been generalizing a bit, calling them Shia because Shia is a bit more from more modern concept than Ali's might be a better way of putting it. Um, getting those blessings is actually a very common practice. So, you know, th- that brings me to the question of its survival and flourishing, which, you know, I, I, again, the book does a really wonderful job in, uh, in, in each chapter explaining what this book, what this shrine is doing and what it's, um, what the descendants of uh, Ahmed are doing to, to allow to, for this um, institution to thrive. But it, 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 and as you say in, in, in at least uh, several chapters that, you know, other institutions, other shrines, you know, have not had the luxury of thrival that this one does. And I would love for you to tell our readers about how other than the, what, at least 42 children and thus thousands and thousands of descendants that <laughs> protect his legacy, what are some other reasons that this institution um, and what you call the saint cult have survived for, you know, 900 years? Sure. Um, let me just give the word cult um, kind of a little bit, because, you know, I actually had a very wonderful scholar of Sufism, Leonard Lewis, uh, Lewis, and comment about this. He asked me why I was, this is before, just before he died, he read through the manuscript and, uh, and he, he, he asked me why he used the word cult, because cult is kind of uh, pejorative now, at least in American English or the world American vernacular. Uh, but cult is not used in a negative sense. Cult is kind of like used more as, I think, more of the dictionary term of, you know, people who, who uh, favor a particular uh, person or idea. And that is all it's meant to be, which uh, now to your question, um, that is... That, that is very difficult in senses because you know over the centuries the reasons have well, have changed, but in large part I must say is the fact that he has Ahmadi Jam has had had so many children and they in terms had many many children. Even today, there are um, you know the town of Tarbari Jam is probably like a hundred thousand uh, people, majority of whom are Sunni even though there is a very, very large Shia minority. Uh, but uh, of those Sunnis, many of them would consider themselves descended in some way or uh, to him. Uh, it's very difficult to make out because as you know, with the names, they, were, you know, they use Jami as a nisba of place, not just as a surname of descent. So so many people calling themselves Jami, even in, including in, in Afghanistan, Western Afghanistan, I run into so many people with the last name Jami. Um, it's difficult to say how many are family, but there, there is a fair amount of family and that has actually helped sustain the, the shrine complex over the years, especially during the difficult times. The difficult times came, you know, it's easy to sustain something in the good times when everybody is, you know, shrine is flourishing, money is coming in, Kings and queens are patronizing the shrine, saying, "Oh yes, you can have, you know, a uh, thousand acres of this here and there for your, you know, uh, of uh, so that you can earn money for the shrine." But when the hard times come come across, which did in, starting in the 1500s, when uh, Shah Ismail Safavi uh, conquered Iran and of, and proclaimed in 1501 that henceforth Shiism is the official faith of uh, of Iran. That was when Iran gradually started converting from majority Sunni to what we see today as majority Shia. 
So those are tough times uh, because patronage, which had been essential for the for the shrine and for the community around it, started drying up. And I'm sure, even though many of the people in Trouble Jam don't talk so much about it, there are even members of Amir Jam's uh, family, I mean, his descendants, who's probably converted to Shiism, uh, or I shouldn't say converted because it's not exactly converted from Christianity to, to Islam. It's just switching teams, so to speak, from being the Sunni rituals and practices and beliefs to Shia rituals and practices beliefs. Um, so that, along with the political changes in Iran uh, under the Safavids, who were, of course, patronizing the you know, co-religion as well as they had moved the capital down to Isfahan. And Isfahan was growing, and eastern Iran was not as um, well patronized. And, of course, comes the very terrible government of the Qajar Shahs, who basically ruined as much of Iran as they possibly could over, you know, 150-odd-year period that they were, 135-odd-year period that they were in power. Um, they gave away half of Iran to Af this country called Afghanistan. And uh, a lot of the support that was there, the economy also in that region started to decline. So the shrine started to shrivel and to the community or the cult started to wither as well. But then, you know, this is actually one of the things, and I think you have the hard copy book, so maybe you don't, but, but you might've seen the photographs in there. There are some photographs that are taken by one of my uh, senior colleagues who was with me at the Journal of Afghanistan that I was working at Warwick Ball, who was actually in Turbidejam in 1977 not too long before the revolution began. And he took these photographs and these showed the shrine in really bad shape. And when I first visited the shrine in 2010, you can see, you know, I, I could see that it was starting to come alive. Um, but there were a lot of restorations going on. And now of course, 2022, I haven't been there in three years, but it was sparkling the last time I was there. So much work was done and uh, and they had been benefiting heavily from what had happened over the last 42 years in Iran, which is the Islamic Republic. And that was itself a great story, I thought. In fact, I should have mentioned this to Robert McChesney, who was another person who kind of helped shape the, shape the book and shape the ideas and he was still amused. It was, you know, it's a great story to think that he has this Sunni shrine that's doing so very well in the Shiite country, in the so-called, you know, Islamic Republic. Yeah, there are photographs here and I, they're, they're, they're in color. I really enjoyed them. Yeah, um, yeah, actually, yeah, we, we, glad we could do it in color. Yeah. Um, because there's some stuff online in black and white. Um, and actually, that's actually, that reminds me of something that I wanted to mention uh, for viewers is that Apart from the color plates, uh, some of which are taken by me, some of, some of which were taken by the skull. One of them is by Bernardo Kane, who was very kind enough to give me a photograph uh, of one of the masks. Uh, he did a very good job of taking a photograph. 
I had messed mine up. Um, the other thing is actually the Iranian cultural heritage organization, Mirasefarangi. They were very kind and they gave me schematics of the shrine. These had never been published before. So for students of architecture, of Islamic architecture, this book would actually be very helpful for them because the entire chapter on the architecture and um, it's a lot of uh, schematics as well as photographs and uh, and also citations to a lot of studies that might they might find helpful and i hope that somebody will one day do an entire book on the architecture of uh, tarberley john because all i could do was one chapter and uh, it's a pretty humble chapter i might say um but uh, uh, some student of islamic architecture who wants to write a thesis and publish it as a book i really encourage them to go to john they'll, they'll welcome everybody there because you only have to say yes to how many jam and they just roll out the red carpet for you. Believe it or not, that's true. I mean, they were just so kind and so generous. Um, you know, everybody from Haji Kazi, who is the head of the shrine, um, to, you know, people in the library or on the streets, they will be ever so kind and helpful and you know, very typically Iranian, actually, in terms of hospitality. Well, that brings me to my next question. I mean, I, I I have other questions too. I like I'm fascinated with how this how this complex becomes the primary manager of um, agricultural estates and hydrological systems, which is sort of you know it, it's it's uh, providing a service to not just Jam but also many other regions uh, around the Khorasan or uh, many other cities and towns around the Khorasan region. Um, but also, like, I'm really interested in, and I think this is one of the, as you discussed, one of the reasons that it's surviving and thriving. What are these, what are some of the services that the shrine offers people in the area? You mentioned something like, you know, feeding people in times of crisis, like plagues and famines, um, madrasas sure. and so on. Could, could you elaborate on some of those? Uh, in terms of um, pre-modern times and modern times? Or... Yes. yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, Unfortunately, in terms of uh, some of the sources uh, on what they did in pre-modern times, uh, it's very, very patchy data. Um, you know, we don't know for sure exactly what they were doing, but we know, for example, one uh, legal document that had survived that they would, do, you know, uh, one of the sheikhs, very senior sheikh, who's Sheikh al-Islam of Tarbati Jam, he donated something like 300,000 kg or that's about 60,000 pounds of seed, uh, you know, for the for the province to the shrine. And that would, you know, would be sold, but it also, you know, there would be payments made to family, to Mawali, Quran readers, dervishes, laborers, neighbors, indigents, and so on. So, uh, unfortunately, can't say that they were doing some things every day for, you know, so many hundreds of years because, you know, as a historian, I have to work with the documents that are available. But what I can, can do is, what I was able to do a little bit is say, these are some of the things that are known to have been done, um, but not you know, definitely be able to say this is what they were consistently doing. Now, there is also some other things. There's another legal document that I was able to find, uh, which is uh, which is actually rather interesting, which has a term in there which translates into feed the people. Now, feed the people has sort of a, a dual meaning. It has the literal meaning of, you know, feed the people. Um, but it also means... 
taking care of people through other means like patronage and helping people through difficult times. So there was another example, for, for, for example, when there was a major famine in the region, um, grain was handed out to people from the shrine silos. Uh, but of course, the, the agents, you know, when they handed out the grain to the hungry, they took notes from them saying, well, you got so many kg or khalwas, as they're called, kg of, you know, of uh, grain. So here, give us a note saying, you're in, indebted to the shrine for this. So people signed them, but the Sheikh al-Islam of Jam came down and he went to all the people who had taken, given these notes. He got the debtors to come around, stand around him. He had the agents take all the debtors' notes and wash them in water, which is actually a traditional way of erasing debts uh, because of course they're in ink. And so when you wash it, the ink runs and there's no more, uh, no more debt. And these are sort of gestures that were expected of people, but by, by the people of nobles who had money or notables, I should say not nobles, notables who had the money went well. So defeat the people is like in that example was quite literally feed the people when they were suffering through a famine. Um, but it also means making sure they're employed and they're taken care of in old age. Um, and I think I have a comment in here somewhere, or maybe not, maybe it's in something else. This feed the, feed the people is actually an expression, takaful emur, is actually not unusual in the Iranian context. It's there in Afghanistan, it's there uh, in other parts of the world as well. And they may not have a word for it, but people understand is that you know, you're supposed to take care of people who are less fortunate and you take a family under your wing, so to speak, and you look after them over the many over many years and their children and their children's children. So one family could be taking care of, you know, another family for a long time until they do very well themselves and they can take care of another family. Um, so... The shrine did stuff like that. Today's terms, the shrine, uh, as, I, as I had mentioned earlier, and I go over it very quickly, they, they give scholarships to students and they also have the libraries. And, uh, and the fact is that they have these two madrasas, one for males and one for females. And I think that's really one of the fascinating things is because they insist on the education for girls as well as boys. Um, and con considering what's going on next door in Afghanistan, um, you know, here's Sunni community that interprets the idea of Islam and um, the rights of women and what they should have access to education as very differently from a bunch of people next door who interpret it very harshly. Uh, and that I think is an interesting interesting story. And they also integrate their madrasas with the Iranian educational system. So this way, uh, a certificate issued at the end of a 10-year or 12-year period of schooling is as valid as if somebody went to a Tehran-funded uh, school. You know, speaking of women, I, so I, I have to ask, when you're, when you're talking about the madrasas and, and, and you write in the chapter that while women and men have the same curriculum, women's training isn't as intense as a men's, and that's because women can't become the ulama. Since women historically, you know, women ulama historically 
obviously did exist throughout Islamic history. What is up with this patriarch? Uh, that I don't know. Actually, I didn't really delve into that subject because I wasn't, I have a feeling it might be more of an Iranian law issue uh-huh. rather than a the, the, the shrine issue um, because uh, they do have to follow certain minimum standards in terms of curriculum. I mean, they do have to teach them to read and to write and do all these things because Iran is actually a very literate society where men and women have, you know, literacy in the 90s. Um, but in terms of certain jobs that are closed to women, I'm guessing under the Iranian law, I'm guessing really, I, I Actually, it's a very interesting question. I'm guessing is that Iranian law says women can become uh, mullahs and therefore they stop at a certain point and go on to be school teachers or they can go on to university and do something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the men can get a you know, license to be a uh, diploma to be a Sunni mullah. And they mm-hmm. also can go to teach and go to university or do whatever they want. But they have that option that women do not have. You're right. Yeah. Did you, were you, um, in your interviews, in your conversations with uh, folks uh, there, did you speak with any women who had studied there or women who come there for their practice and stuff? No, I mean, I spoke in general terms, but I actually didn't really want it to be too much of a modern study because uh, yeah. I, uh, I want, I, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a historian, so I, I, I didn't really want to delve too much into the anthro side of things where you do a lot of interviews with people. I only tried to work as much as I could with documents. Um, and when I had to use any interviews, it was mostly in terms of people being willing to share with me um, mm-hmm. intimate practices of Sufis, um, which is difficult to do uh, in the sense is there were, there are a number of different Sufi groups in there in terms of how, when I mean Sufi groups, they have different ways of doing the zik or whatever it might be. And in terms of also, you know, how about different types of opening prayers, how many times it is zik and, and how they do the closing. Some of them didn't want to share, one or two did. Um, I don't know how much you want me to delve into that. Uh, I, mean, I, was, I was actually going to ask you next what their contemporary zikr practices, because I found that chapter very fascinating. Your descriptions were really rich and I could see myself like seeing, you know, witnessing all of this. And it was very fascinating. What do their contemporary zikr practices look like? Um, and in there, right, uh, how are, I'm, I'm just interested in the question of women always, uh, are women practicing, um, you know, are, are they, because you say that they, you, you mentioned that they, the zikr practices, uh, they begin at dawn for, you know, with, with the morning prayer. Um, I'm just wondering if, what the gender dynamics might be like. No, um, this, uh, this is just the one group that kind of, you know, shared with me. Right, um, I remember, yes. What they did, there are a couple other, there are women's groups as well, yes. Um, one of the things I think I might have mentioned in there is that this Hibito Raman, who was granddaughter of Bahamadi Jam, was one of his favorites. Yes. And she, there's a the girl's madrasa is named after her. And since she did so much stuff, their, their view is if it is okay for her to do it, then obviously it's perfectly fine for women today or throughout the last 800 years to do whatever they want that men are also doing. So there's never been a prescription on, on any of that. Um, and this one particular group, they 
meet in the morning. Um, this is just their view is that doing it in the morning is, you know, more efficacious for them, for their soul, than if they were doing it in the afternoon or in the evening. Um, you know, just like people go to the gym in the morning, you know, I could never do it um, at six in the morning, but these guys seem to think that getting together and at, you know, uh, after the morning prayer to, to have an hour or so in a halka to have the zik is fine. And that's their thing. And there are others who might prefer to do it early in the evening or some who might do it in the weekend. And, 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 and as I mentioned throughout too, there are, because people have to earn a living too, there are other ways in which they do the zik without having to actually do the circle. You know, the typical traditional or the stereotypical Sufi circle where they have a member, you know, do, do a reading from the Quran and they go through Zach, and then you know how many times they do it, whether they go in the circle and somebody else to do the next and next and next and next, or they can just do it by themselves while in the bazaar. And that's really how the popularity of the silent Zach came about is that you know, the for, for some Sufis in the old days, um, they, they if somebody was patronizing them, they could not work for the rest of their lives, they just get to you know, pray and to reflect on God and to do all these other religious activities or spiritual activities. Um, but that doesn't work for everybody. Right. So for the person who might just be working in the bazaar, shopkeeper, you know, they have the prayer beads in the hand. And that's actually something you actually see people do. Um, in shops, um, they, you can, if you just, all you have to do is just look at the fingers and you can see that after about a minute or so, they move one bead forward. Uh, that's because they are actually saying a silent zek or a silent prayer. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Mm -hmm. And this, I only kind of covered a couple of groups because unfortunately not everybody wants to, you know, wants to talk about it or to welcome strangers into the group. Oh, yeah. Which is totally understandable also. Oh, yeah, exactly. I, I never actually repressed it because actually I didn't even ask. I would just simply say something like, you know, uh, it would be very interesting and I just leave it be. If somebody wanted to invite me, I would, you know, go. Yeah. There's there's also the issue too is, is some don't want um, not just strangers, don't want non-Muslims in the group. And I'm not. So there is that issue as well. Though nobody would be ever ever be so impolite as to mention that to me, but it might just be uh, a factor in terms of their their thinking. Yeah, you know that actually brings me to the question of we were talking earlier before we began the interview of <clears throat> the process of doing this book. I, you know, is there anything you'd like to t uh, share with us? Because I'm almost it, it has to be really complicated. You're dealing with historic stuff. You're de dealing with some contemporary stuff. You're talking to people, you have all of these really, really diverse uh, sources, um, materials you're working with. What was that process of doing the research for this book like? Well, it wasn't easy in the sense. <laughs> I mean, you know, to be honest with you, as a historian who works in the medieval period for the most part and um, works off of the hagiographies, the histories, uh, the chronicles, whatever it might be, the hardest part is probably trying to understand some things that are being said because modern Persian is one thing, modern Arabic is one thing, but some of these older books are written in a mixture of 
medieval Arabic and medieval Persian. And, you know, actually I can give you an example is you might have a perfectly fine Arabic sentence which starts with the Arabic verb and then ends with the Persian verb as well. And it kind of confuses at first. But so you, you know, you're kind of used to reading those things. And after a while, you kind of get into the text and you can just go on from there. But then you get all these other issues that come in because you go through different time periods as well. It's wanting to be, as I do, specialize in the Mongol period and the Timurid period, which is about 1200 to around 1500. But then you start delving into the Safavid period, which is like from 1501 to 1722. Then you have a little interlude, the Zons, and then you have, you know, you go into the Khajar era, then you go into the Pallavis. So that's a lot of historical periods to jump through. That actually I found to be much harder to do because you, the sources are not uniform. Because when the shrine started, declining popularity and the architecture started to crumble a bit by bit, the sources also start to decline, to, 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 to shrink. So like from the 1500s, uh, little by little, you know, the information on the, on the shrine starts to, to decline. And I think when you were reading through the book, you probably have found that there's like this 300 year period in which I don't really have that much information to offer uh, because the sources didn't have that much information. Uh, and then you go into the you know the Qajar period. Everybody in Iran was struggling under these 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 uh, horrible shahs who basically sold the country out to the foreigners and uh, indebted Iran and basically ruined as much of it as they possibly could ruin. Um, and I don't think a lot of people were too interested in writing about the shrine, including people of the shrine, because they were just trying to subsist and survive. Uh, the family, uh, uh, their descendants of Ahmadi Jam. Slowly, things started to come up in the Pallavi period. And one of the great scholars who unfortunately, you know, died some years ago, who had a very helpful gentleman named Heshmat Moyayed, who used to be at uh, uh, University of Chicago, he really is one of the people who brought Ahmadi Jam and uh, the shrine to the public beginning in the 60s. And uh, I think he wrote his thesis on them. He published a number of works, edited a number of Insha collections on them. Uh, so because of the unevenness, that was actually harder for me to, to work with. And then I also didn't like the idea of actually having to use interviews, you know, uh, particularly like the dissertation time and so on, I didn't do any. I just kept everything that could be documented as much as possible. There were a couple of documents, uh, legal documents that Shrine gave me. I got them certified in Iran as authentic copies and used them uh, because I just didn't want any kind of questions about uh, authenticity coming up. Uh, but in terms of the book, I had to use a few interviews and I tried to minimize it as much as possible and to rely as much as I could. And those those trying to balance that out was tough. The writing part is easy enough for me because that kind of comes naturally for me, mm-hmm. trying to put it all together and to sort through what to use and what not to use is, is a bit difficult and how to use it. Yeah, no, I that's a, it's the, you know, have sifting through your um, interviews and for example, the conversations and figuring out what to include and what to not include is always a difficult process for me too. So no, we're, sure. yeah, so we're nearing um, the end of our conversation here. Okay, as, okay. We, as we end, we like to ask our authors to tell us 
about any current or future projects that they're working on. You just mentioned earlier that you had a book um, that is under, uh, you said, revisions or re review right now? Oh, no, no, it's, uh, it's, it's in press. Uh, it's in the press. The second revisor of the final set of proofs. Uh, so that book should be out in September. Um, <laughs> That is a history of Herat under from Genghis Khan to uh, Tamerlane. That's the title. It'll be published by Edinburgh University Press. This, you know, when the Mongols invaded, they kind of made a complete mess of eastern Iran uh, from Nishapur all the way up to uh, Balkan Badakhshan. And then comes along this Tajik dynasty that they installed that actually helped uh, revitalize Harat and make it into a thriving center of Islamic learning, of uh, economic center as well. And that's the story that I can tell in this second book. And this one, I'm staying very much into the medieval period and into like 150 or 180 year period from the time of 100. 60-year period from when the Mongols first came to town to when Tamerlane came and knocked on the doors of Herat. Hmm. I'm very interested in Central Asia and Afghanistan, so I look forward to that book. Okay, oh, yeah. Wait. Thank you very much. That might be a, you know, fairly interesting because especially nowadays, there's a lot of interest in Afghanistan mm -hmm. and, you know, on the Khorasan region. And it's also a book that I try to blend local history and, and medieval history uh, local history and sorry, Mongol history together in terms of imperial history and local history. That's a better way of putting it, I suppose. Yeah. Well, uh, oh, and before we end, is there anything else you'd like to share with us about this book or anything that we didn't talk about that you'd like to say before we end? No, no, no. no. Actually, I think you talked talk a lot more about this book than I okay. thought I possibly could. Because actually, it's kind of funny is that, you know, after you know, this book came out last year, I did, and I was focusing on the revisions for the history of Herod. And I hadn't looked at this book in like a few months. I didn't even have a hard copy with me. And this morning I was like, oh my God, I have this thing with uh, Chanel. I better look through this and see what, what kind of rubbish I put together in there. Like, <laughs> notes. I'm my own book. I'm making notes. Oh, what on earth did I put in this thing? You know? No, I understand. I, I have to I have to always remember that the you know the, the folks that I'm interviewing submitted this book for publication like a long, you know, much longer than it finally reached me. And so I thank you for your uh, th thank you for remembering a lot of this stuff and for sharing with us all of these details. And um, I have no doubt that the audience will enjoy it very much. I hope they do. I hope they do. And I hope they, you know, have an opportunity to, to, to read it. And like I said, for people in Islamic architecture, there's a great deal of stuff as well as for people in Islamic, mm -hmm. uh, in Islamic studies. But I actually did, by the way, one very, very quick point I wanted to make is I mean, I did it. I did it in a way, too, that might actually be interesting for people who are not in Islamic history or Islamic studies or Islamic architecture, uh, which is why I took things like Macron's and Diacritics out, because I found certain books on Catholic and Orthodox saints um, helpful for me. So hopefully people in Christian studies or uh, Catholicism, whatever, might also find that there are certain similarities and dissimilarities between saints in Muslim world and saints in the Christian world, and I hope that they too will find this book of help of of uh, you know of some benefit to them. Oh, absolutely! Thank you so much for for adding that point. Also, well, thank All you right. very much for having me. I'm very very grateful. Well, no, thank you, Shivan. This was this was absolutely great, and I uh, can't wait to um, share the interview with uh, our readers and audiences.
thank you very much, Nazareth. All the very best to you in your, in your revisions and publication. Yes, thank you very much, Nathan. Okie dokie. Thanks. Okay. Bye. All right. So that was my interview with Shivan Mahindra Raja on his book, The Sufi Saint of Jam History, Religion, and Politics of a Sunni Shrine in Shia Iran, published with Cambridge University Press in 2021. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next episode. Salam. <laughs>